prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, a deep dive into House of the Dragon with Patty Considine. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz, and yes, we have the king himself, Viserys, is on the show today. And I'm just going to say this up front, spoiler warnings galore. Uh, I would highly recommend watching at least through episode 8 of House of the Dragon before proceeding, because this is an open and honest chat with uh, the great actor that is Patty Considine uh, about a uh, fantastic first season on House of the Dragon. Okay, spoilers? Good? Good. Okay. Um, as you know by now, uh, Patty has just wrapped up his run on the show. Uh, his run as Viserys, King Viserys, uh, came to an end in episode 8 in a beautiful episode, um, and we dive into all of it today. This is a great chat um, with an actor I've long admired, um, if you've seen him in uh, way back when. I remember him first, perhaps, in In America, the great Jim Sheridan movie. If you haven't seen that, he's been in a bunch of um, uh, Shane Meadows' work over the years, uh, has done great wa uh, work on the stage in both the West End and here on Broadway, and now in his, certainly his most high-profile role, because, you know, you don't get much bigger in pop culture than the new Game of Thrones show, and this one has captured the imagination of folks, and this performance in particular has captured the imagination of folks, uh, including George R. R. Martin, who has said that basically he did this character better service than his own writing, and... Um, so that, that is the highest praise I can imagine. So this is a great chat with an actor, a self-deprecating, but, um, but a truly uh, talented actor in Patty Considine. Um, other things to mention before we dive into this chat. Um, let's see, just a, a bunch more uh, events I should mention. You know, again, if you want to see me in person talking to some amazing folks, we got a bunch of options coming up for you. Uh, let's see, October 25th at Symphony Space, Ralph Macchio talking about his memoir, Waxing On, Karate Kid, My Cousin Vinny, Cobra Kai, all of it. October 26th at 92nd Street Y, I'm going to be talking to Henry Cavill. And yes, we have a lot to talk about, guys. Uh, Enola Holmes 2 is the film that he's promoting, but we're going to go into The Witcher and Superman, past, present, and perhaps future. Um, more to come on that. And on November 11th, guys, I'm talking to Sylvester Stallone and Terrence Winter about their new show, Tulsa King. Yeah, a deep dive with Sly Stallone. Um, I am really psyched for that one. Uh, and it segues well into this conversation today because Patty actually is a huge Rocky fan, like maybe the biggest Rocky fan on the planet. He, uh, we talk about that love here, we talk about his love of horror films. Um, and for those of you that want to watch this one, and I would recommend actually watching the video of this one because Patty shows off some great uh, Halloween items, but also some memorabilia, um, some souvenirs really from the set of House of the Dragon. So if you want to watch this, go over to youtube.com slash Josh Horowitz. All these links are in the show notes. Um, remember to hit up the Patreon page. We're putting up exclusive content there, including, by the way, exclusive stuff we shot with Sam Hewen at Comic-Con that is going up only on the Patreon page, at least for now. I think I might keep it there. Uh, Patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused for exclusive Sam Hewen uh, stuff that we shot at Comic-Con. That's super fun. Uh, that's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. All right, let's get to the main event, 
House of the Dragon fans, you are not going to be disappointed. This is uh, we really focus on the show, but certainly talk about the 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 broader aspects of his career. But um, I think you'll enjoy this. This is me and Patty Considine. Patty Considine, finally on the Happy Set Confused podcast. It's a real pleasure, sir. Thanks, man. No, thanks for having me. So, um, first of all, you come not only not only am I a fan, but uh, you come highly recommended. Uh, Matt Smith and Edgar Wright both have vouched for you as a good human being to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you have, have over to, on I them. Have to, I have to smack them around a little bit to get them yeah. to say that. You know, <laughs> you tell Josh I'm good. Yeah. Um, I, I smack them around a little bit, a little beat in here and there. Yeah. How was doing the press tour with Matt by your side? I talked to Claire Foya, who's done had to do that a lot over the years, and I know it's a it's a can be a tough that's a tough road. Yeah. How was it for it, you? It's all right. It's all right. It's a bit of an assault, you know, if you're not used to doing it, and uh, you know, it's like retraining your brain again to, to try and deal with it all. It's um, you know, and particularly like post the the pandemic thing. I know it seems like it's fading in the distance now, but. You know, I think f- forgot how to behave quite a bit, you know, and yeah, yeah. Just, just it was really weird. Um, but it, the press tour went well enough. I found it, I found it a bit odd, really, because you know you're there with the show, you're unknown, and th- there's a kind of buzz about something that nobody's seen. So you're there talking about a show that nobody has any idea if it's going to succeed or fail. You're playing some boring king as far as they're concerned, you know, some good king who's kind of a boring guy. And you're having to sit there and tolerate all the nonsense and just in the back of your mind going, I wish, I wish, you know, if I was in season two, for example, it'd probably be a lot easier. <laughs> well, the, the good news is now you're, you're getting a, you're getting a little bit of a run to get to, you know, dig into the juicy stuff. And it's, it's, it, I mean, yeah. It's just a, a remarkable arc for your character and a great first season for the show. Um, but before we get to the show itself, I just do want to mention, I see the jack-o'-lantern behind you, and I've been informed oh, yeah. that you, you you are a big Halloween guy. Now, my, my understanding yeah. growing up was that Halloween isn't necessarily as big overseas as it is in the States, but was that not the case for you? No, well, it was, it, you know, obviously it's, got, its roots are in, in Celtic. It's a Celtic thing. You know, it went over to America, so it wasn't originally f- from America, Halloween. Well, um, yeah. we appropriated so, it and made it into a, you know, a McDonald's holiday like we do every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but my, you know, if I'm honest, though, when I was a little kid, it, it wasn't a big thing in England, but we did used to do stuff as little kids. You know, we'd make potatoes out, uh, pumpkins out of potatoes and, wrap ourselves in newspaper. My mum and my next door neighbour would like wrap us in newspaper with pins and make little witches costumes when we were really little. So it was obviously around then. But um, I think my love of Halloween grew up, my love of horror films and also, you know, American movies. You know, as a kid, you'd watch films like E.T. and it'd be Halloween and you wish right. that it was like over here because it wasn't at the time, it, but it's grown more massive over the last, uh, you know, 20 years or more in England. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your horror movie taste because Edgar was saying you're just like a fanatic for horror films and like we're, you're you're a couple yeah. years older than me, but we both kind of sounds like we came of age in the '80s. And I know that there was the bit of the slasher films of the era, but then we have John Carpenter in that era. What's what's your Mount yeah. Rushmore of horror? What's your like top five? Well, I I, I loved Carpenter. I absolutely love Carpenter as a filmmaker. I think he's amazing. Um, what an, an amazing body of work in that period of time from Halloween, you know, onwards, 
Um, but uh, do you know something like Edgar Wright? Edgar's one of those people that's a real filmo and can talk about film. And I, I'm not really that sort of guy. I'm not a factoid on things. And I just right. like the things that I like, you know. But um, my first experience of seeing a horror, horror film or a horror moment was when Salem's Lot was on television in England. And I was only a little kid. And I came, I had this, woke up in one of those weird deliriums, you know, and gone downstairs and the rest of my family were all sitting up really late watching the television. So I sort of crept into the room and sat at my mother's feet and I'm going, what's everybody watching? You know, because they were yeah. just like glued to this thing. And it was a scene in the police cell where you first see Mr. Barlow and um, there was this prison cell, you know, and I'm going, what's going on? And then the lock and then the claws. <laughs> And then, oh, you know, and I just, I, I'm, I leapt like a cat from the floor onto my mother's lap and yeah. screamed like, not not just scared, hysterically, hysterically. <laughs> and I loved horror from that moment onwards. But I was scared of watching horror films. Um, the first of the Halloween films, it wasn't even the original. It was on video and it was the John Carpenter. Right. Uh, sorry, it was Halloween 2. Sorry, my, oh, okay, my got it. You, oh, got it. It was Halloween 2, sorry. So I, I hadn't, I didn't really see the original. Um but I was watching that just terrified. That was the first horror film that I braved sitting through, actually sat through it and thought, I'm going to try and watch this and not leave the room. So that was quite a, a triumph. But there was another funny one. I remember like at the time, because The Evil Dead was banned in Britain and you couldn't kind of watch it on the cinema and it wasn't around on video. So all they had was people would have pirate videos of it and have these little viewing gatherings. And I got sent to fetch my sister from a friend's house. And I walked to the house and I knocked on the door and it was pitch black in the day. And my sister's friend answered the door and said, what do you want? And I said, my mum sent me to get Mandy. She went, come in, we're watching somewhere, but be quiet. And I walked in and I stood in the edge of the doorway and I'm looking at this film plane. And, and again, this gang of kids are all glued to watching it. And I, I can see this film and it's like, it's, it looks blue. You know, it's got a, like a blue filter on it and it's nighttime and it looks blue. And then you, you see Bruce Campbell and all that. And I'm going, I didn't know anything about it. I'm a kid and I'm looking, I'm going, oh, this is blue. And I'm like, oh, this is what they must mean by a blue movie. You know, like a porno <laughs> film. I didn't have any concepts when, oh, so this is a blue movie, you know. <laughs> very <laughs> take, very literal, yeah. <laughs> and then the next minute she it must have been a bad pirate and the next minute she shoots out of the ground you know and he chops her head off with the spade and i was just like <laughs> it's funny because like i get it i get it i totally relate i have those memories too of seeing like you know the it mini series as a kid of seeing the exorcist on a late night when i and in the edited version even of the edit of the exorcist on like basic cable still just scarred me for life in the best possible yeah. way, but those stick with you. And like, yeah, it's fantastic. I'm curious, like you actually haven't worked, like, have you ever worked with any of like the quote unquote horror masters? Have you, you haven't done like the, I don't know, the Cronenberg, the, the Carpenter. It hasn't happened yet. Has it? No, never, never have, you know, never have and probably never will really, but no. it's all right. You know, sometimes I, sometimes I, I just prefer being a fan of things and, you know, I can just sit back from afar and enjoy it. And I think, you know, sometimes when you get involved with things that you love and, you you, you know, you see behind the curtain and you go, oh, I kind of wish I hadn't done that now. <laughs> the magic's been spoiled. And, and in what we do, you know, it's 
we're constantly, you know, seeing behind the scenes of it all. And and I just want to keep that illusion there in some respects with something. So I don't have a burning desire to be in a horror film or anything like that. I'm just a massive fan. That's fair. I, I still, I could see you, I feel like as a, uh, what, you got something there? Oh, I've got lots of things, lots of Halloween. What do you got? Three little mini masks here and I love it. all kinds of crazy stuff. I've got Does my that... Halloween three, a Ouija board. <laughs> There from Trick Studios, and I've got it's all a little bit of a mess at the minute. Is there is there, is there is there going to be like is there a Halloween night tradition? It is for us, yeah. You recognize that guy? That's wow. amazing. You this is this is does the family support <laughs> your obsessions? Yeah, they love it. Well, you know, my little daughter as well is a big fan of horror. She has been for years. She watched the Chucky films way too young, but she loved them. And the first horror film she, she watched was Mama. And oh, um, we like just walked one. in the room and caught her watching it. And she was about four, four or five years old. And we were like going, she shouldn't be seeing that. And then I was outside, you know, sweeping up or whatever I was doing in the garden. And I found a piece of paper and opened it. And it was a little drawing and a little note she'd written to Mama and thrown out of her window that night, you know, to give her a message. And I went... Oh God, I might have awakened something. <laughs> you know, well, she's awakened something there, but she's always been fascinated with horror herself. So, uh, yeah, we go to all these conventions together. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we just had a Comic Con here in, in in New York, so it's always fun for me to walk around that insanity. Um, so okay, I do want to talk. Let's let's get into. I mean, we could talk about horror for hours, but let's talk about House of the Dragon because it's fresh on my mind, and you have just man. You've completed an amazing run on the show. Congratulations. Like this is it's stellar stuff. I know, I know, I don't know how good you are at taking compliments, but you must be feeling, I don't know. Tell me about this. Like, cause I my sense in reading about you is you are tough on yourself. How does that jibe with what people are saying about what you've done with this character, which is very positive stuff? Are you able to accept the love? Um, I um that's a no. Truthfully, no. Yeah, it's strange. I don't know if it's part of me and part of my condition or whatever, or, or a condition of mine. But I just, uh, you know, I, but I'll put it this way. All right, I, I'm not great at accepting things, um, but I, I'm I'm okay to acknowledge that. You know, I'm I'm rarely feel any fulfillment from anything that I do in, in work wise. You know, um, and I think for so many years, I was sort of in the background a little bit, even if it was, you know, films that I've made myself and, and right. the, the, they were, you know, these, these big expressions and explorations, I've still felt like I was sidelined in them in some way. And, and then, so I think to, to, to finally sort of be in something where I feel like when I played Viserys, like a lot of things came together for me in that part, it became quite <clears throat> personal for me. And I think for a long time, feeling sort of partially sidelined to do be, be able to be in something like that on this scale and, and for it to be global I think it was I don't want to call it an arrival but there's a part of me that was always going hello I'm here I'm here I'm capable of doing these things I just want the chance and in England I was just becoming the guy from Dead Man Shoes and it'd been like that for nearly 20 years and after a while you got to appreciate you love the film, but I can, I'm capable of so much more than that. But that's all I was becoming. Right. And I, and I knew that I could do other things. I just wanted the chance. And 
you know, Viserys and, and House of the Dragon gave me the chance. And, you know, I loved, I loved the character from the beginning, from the minute I read him. And I thought he was a, a massive gift. And I've said this in other interviews, but, you know, I always, in a very self-deprecating way, but I always say, who's turned this down then? Who don't want to do it? Because, like, this is great. And it's like, well, nobody's turned it down because they haven't offered it to anybody. It's yours if you want to do it. And I've got to give full credit to Miguel Sapochnik and, and, and Ryan Condal. They were the people I met first and had a conversation about it for thinking of me for it and, and offering me it. Um, I, you know, I, I thought it was a gift, but there was a definite sort of, there was something redemptive in it for me that I, I felt like, oh, finally, they've seen what I can do. And they are that invisible they. No, you know, and, it, and it's hard to quantify I mean? that. And it's hard to, yeah. to and I, I get it though, but like, yeah, cause I'm sure in your brain, for those of us with active brains that think about this stuff, it's like, wait, yeah. if and when I get the shot, if I, if and when I get that center role in the center of culture, what if I fail? What if people don't give a shit? What it like, yeah. and then it, and it's the good news about this conversation is not only did people watch, yeah. they really accepted it with love and, and not happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but I genuinely, that aside though, as well, I, I genuinely loved the character. Yeah. And I worked really hard on him and put a lot into him. And George R. R. Martin's been really complimentary about what I brought to it. And you know, it was a, it was a really tough job, but I, I felt that sense of fulfillment that I rarely, if ever, feel. And um, you know, and I think you're allowed to feel that every now and again. Yeah. I just felt like all the hard work I'd done. I know I wasn't trained as an actor in any way, right? And. And I always felt there was a part of the puzzle missing with me. I always felt like a bit of an imposter. I wouldn't go as far as that. I didn't think I had talent because that would be untrue. But I don't know. There's a part of me that was always hiding and holding back and, you know, just feeling uncomfortable. And I got to a point of acting in, in, in this country and I was going, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. Um, I'm, I'm trying to break the mold in some way, but I can't escape my beginnings in acting you know I can't get away from that and like I said I'm capable of so much more um well I will say what, well what you're saying resonates and I honestly it's maybe the most recurring narrative in my conversations with the folks over the eight years of doing this podcast is like I trust the ones that have the imposter syndrome and I don't trust the ones that feel like they are entitled <laughs> <laughs> I mean as you say you know yourself enough to know you're obviously very talented but I don't know we all, all, all the good ones feel enough self-doubt that keeps them sharp and keeps them. Yeah. You know, and I could have just carried on doing similar things in this country. And I, I could have stayed in my lane and at my level, whatever that yeah. is, you know, like I was told once, but I'm like, no, I, I, I no, there's, I'm here because this is a choice I made and it's a journey and it's, and it's a really, and it's not a sprint either. It's a marathon and I'm here to learn i'm not saying i'm the finished article i never want to be that but i just felt that there was all this untapped potential and i went out to make myself uncomfortable i wrote and directed my own films and went through the the, the glory and the absolute disappointment of that um i took myself well i got these opportunities but you've got to turn up i, I went and did a play i was never going to do a play 
we did that in the West End, eventually on Broadway. I was never going to do Broadway. That's not, that was never a plan of mine. But it came and it was a life-changing experience. And I just feel like I, during that period of time, I got to have an education. I, I got the chance to learn a little bit more about acting because, you know, there's this argument about natural talent and talent and craft and things like that. And I'm like, well, you know, if you've got some natural talent, what's wrong with kind of bringing in some craft to that? Right. There's nothing wrong with it. If right. I was a fighter, I'd be a great trainer. If, if they can make me a more refined fighter, then you'd go, you'd, you'd, you'd learn the craft. So that's all it was ever about to me. And I think all those lessons came to a, a you know, came to a collision and, and, you know, through Viserys Targaryen, I, I just think that I was able to, all those lessons I learned, I was able to put them into him yeah. and deliver that kind of bonds. So when this one comes around, as you said, like it was, it was something clearly you wanted to do, but I mean, and you knew presumably when they come to you, they say, I mean, the, the character is the character. We know his end at the beginning. And by the way, this is spoiler alert stuff for folks that haven't seen through to the end of uh, episode seven, eight, eight, uh, um, maybe take a pause. But um, I assume they said from the beginning, this is the first season. This is what's going to happen. You're only in it for the first season, but we're going to, we're going to trace the arc of this. Like, would, would you have been interested if they said this is potentially going to be stretched out over three to five years or was the one season of it all exciting for you? And not if it, not if it was in a, if it wasn't going to be an interesting character. I didn't want to be standing there in armor for God knows how many months and years of my life, and just you know every now and I've been offered jobs on epic things and in the past, and it all sounded very exciting. And then when the when you got the script and looked at it, you were literally standing in the background with a spear, and all these other actors got to play, and you stepped up, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing that, you know. Um, so this was different. I think when I read it. Um, and I, I, it didn't bother me that it was one season because he, I, 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 he had a story, he had a beginning, middle and an end. And I thought he was a beautifully brilliant, complex character. Um, you know, it used to drive me nuts when people talked about him as, uh, you know, you're weak, you right. know, and all this. And I'm like, I think you're underestimating me. You know, Viserys was no idiot in my eyes. And uh, he certainly wasn't weak. That's for sure. And it was interesting watching that tide turn from the beginning of the beginnings of the show. You know, it was a bit of a, a, a competition. It was all about favoritism and things like that. And I'm, I'm not here for, for any fuckers competition. I'm not here to be your mate or to be anybody's favorite. I'm here to play for Sarah's Targaryen. And I, a friend messaged me today actually, and they said, you watching it, they said like, now seeing the end of it, it's almost like at the beginning, like you knew who he was from the beginning. And I'm like, yeah, I did. And I think that was the difference. I knew who he was from the start. I just had a sense of him from the very, very beginning. And I, I to be able to have one season, but to be able to go in and make an impact like that, um, I think what, what more would I want really? Yeah. I mean, I, I could turn up year after year and, dip in and dip out and you wouldn't see me for four episodes. I'm like, right. no, I came in and I did it and I died and I'm gone and that's it. <laughs> that's and it. I mean, why you've been, not? You've been very kind in talking about the director and the creators and the writers and, and, and your fellow actors. Um, and I, I want to get the pronunciation of her her name right. Sean Brooke, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, Sean? Sean Brooke, yeah. 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 Um, who you've been saying like, 
that's the key to the character for you is the loss of that character yeah. that that really casts a shadow and it, down to his dying breath um yeah. and that and that was clear to you from from the start this was going to be um the inciting incident or the, the the incident that would really just cast a shadow over the rest of his life yeah i understood what that event did to him i had an idea what it did to him um but uh, um but because you 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 take on a character and and i'm talking about acting so naff and pretentious <laughs> you go on a journey and because i've directed as well when i when i direct i'm very open to things moving you know um like the first film i wrote and directed tyrannosaur it was very it was scripted it was an improvised film it was scripted and they stuck to the script but ideas came and went in it new avenues opened as we were making it and I was never afraid to explore those possibilities. Um, and, and I think I'm like that as an actor as well, particularly when you're living with a character for a really long period of time. So yeah, what I'm saying is you're receptive. I'm very receptive to right. things and people and events. So when I knew that the death of Emma would devastate this series, but until we shot it and I worked with Sean for what was just a few days and I think what determined it was because what we shot was 10 times more brutal than what you saw. And he was 10 times more devastated than what you saw. I mean, he was inconsolable. He was absolutely distraught. Um, and there was a scene that didn't make the cut where I'm sitting on the bed, there's blood on the bed and I've got the, the dagger. And one of the maesters brings, uh, I don't know if he brings bail onto me and I can't even look at him. Or I think the, the thing was, he comes to tell me that actually Balon hasn't lived. And so Viserys was hit with this double whack of devastation of his wife and then the kid, you know, his, his son. And then, the, then there was this sense of like, huh, you know, like that cruel twist of fate of like, I'm not surprised, you know, yeah. I'm not surprised. Resignation, but just they, like amused resignation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they cut it, and 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 probably rightly so because it just cuts them to the funeral pyre. But and that's probably the right choice, really. But it was just the impact of those scenes, the amount of emotion that we put into it, and the amount of effort and emotion that Sean put into it. There was such long, hard days filming, and she left such an impression with her work, even in the more tender scenes. That I, I, I just she left a kind of imprint everywhere. And she left this impression on me yeah. and it just changed the course of how I played the character. I just went, this is it. This is the thing that this man carries for the rest of his life. And this is the thing that he can't get over. And my secret then became, you know, when she's burning, it's like, I, I don't want to live anymore. Um, so when he starts to, he's starting to get these injuries from the throne and he's, he's starting to get this kind of, you know, the, the stuff on his back, the blistering on his back. When it starts to develop into something else, he doesn't care because right. you know, if, you, if you look at the story, he doesn't ask the maesters for a cure. He's not scared. He's not going, help me, my arm's falling off. It's everybody else going, let's try the leeches. Let's try this. Oh, there's an old technique. He's not. He's just silently accepting his fate by way of punishment for what he put his wife through in those final moments. And, and that's how those, that, those days with Sean changed the way that I went about the character. Cause secretly I just went, this is a love story. And one day he'll be reunited. 
So by the final scene, when he's lying on the bed, and all I had in my head was that he reaches up and touches her face. And then he, I improvise that moment where I say, my love. And the beautiful thing as well about that episode was that, that they just picked up every nuance. You, you give good work to people and they don't see it. They don't see the little moments. They don't see the crown falling off the head and use it. You know, they, they, they stop and go again. Whereas the accidents are where beautiful things happen. And Gita allowed for these things to happen. And not only that, um, put them in, put these little nuances in, put those moments in. And I, and I was really grateful because, you know, a lot of your performance too depends on the work of everybody else and the choices they make in the edit. And I can say with my hand on my heart that I thought the choices they made were fantastic. So I, I was just so it's funny because what you're talking about, like people talk about improvisation, et cetera. But like the, the the point is, these are building on the foundation, the building blocks of of the script and your actors. And the two things you've just mentioned of that deathbed moment and that like I'm going to get like emotional just thinking about you and Matt is just like such a it's just it says so much about that relationship, that very complex relationship that as as crazy as this story is, we all can relate to many of us have brothers and sisters and 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 and, yeah. and it's uh it's a human extrapolation of what's yeah. on the page it's it's fantastic well, you know I, the messages i got from people who were just like i watched my parent die I, I you know and that's that's what it was like and i went well that's what it was like for me when i watched my father die and that's what i played in those moments and the shocking thing was when my wife said you've got to just see this last bit because i don't really watch myself because you've got to watch, just got to watch this last bit when you go. And I went, okay. And, and the first thing she put on was this image of me in the bed. And I just burst out crying. And, you know, my daughter, Frano, came over and put her arms around me. And I went, that, like, I wasn't just, it didn't just remind me of my dad. I looked the image, the image of my dad when he was dying, you know, and that was a real shock. Um, I didn't know it was going to be like that at all. And that was frightening. But um, that's what yeah. we do, you know, yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so you haven't watched, the, it sounds like you haven't been watching the show. Will you watch it now? I mean, now you can watch it from a distance so is, or is that going to be weird? <laughs> I, I, I look, you know, I'm a funny creature. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very self-critical and um, cripplingly so. And, you know, I feel like, I watched the first episode a couple of times. We had our premieres and I crept into the second episode and saw bits of the third, but not all of it. And okay. And then my wife showed me a scene from one of the others and I thought I was awful in it. And then I couldn't watch it anymore. You know, I watched other people's bits. I watched some of the other people's <laughs> scenes in the show. You know, I, I made sure I looked at my colleagues and my comrades and saw what they were up to. Um, so it's not like... But I, I couldn't, you know, and it, and it kind of did my not in for weeks. And I went, I, I can't watch this fucking thing. It doesn't matter if <laughs> Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, and Sam Rockwell, all, all the people I love, Phil Hoffman were there standing in the line going, Paddy, that's amazing what you're talking about. It, it wouldn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. Well, let, on that note, let me read. And this might make you this might make you cringe and want to like uh, run into the other room. But this is what George R. R. Martin said, and I just want to say for the record, the character he created for the show is so much more powerful and tragic and fully fleshed than my own version in Fire and Blood that I'm half tempted to go back and rip up those chapters and rewrite the whole history of his reign. Patty deserves an Emmy for this episode alone. If he doesn't get one, hey, there's no justice. So that's the guy. Well, that's the man. There are far, there are far greater injustices in the world, but <laughs> for George to say that, I, you know, it's it's really humbling, and I can't, you know, I think that's an amazing thing to do, to have the author and creator of that world say those things yeah. that you've made a character to be made. You know, the, the the thing is that you know, Viserys was on was was on the script. You know, when I talk of improvisation, I don't mean we went in and it was like Goodfellas, you know. It wasn't, it's just the odd flourish. It's the thing yeah. you felt. And, and I always had this thing of when I die, I know what I see and I know what I want to see. And I kept that a secret. Um, and I don't I don't know if I even spoke to Geisha about it. I can't remember. But to have the, it was always there. But what happened early on was like the, you know, we did a dreadful read through. It was COVID. We were all 20 meters apart from each other. Right. It felt like we were doing it on megaphones. Um, it was like in a spaceship. It was odd. <laughs> it was weird. Everybody was projecting, you know, and all this shit. And <laughs> it was horrible. And afterwards, Miguel looked worried. And I thought, oh, here's the part where they know they've fucked up and they've hired the wrong person. And he went, we need to put more Paddy in it. And I went, Okay. And he went, it's missing Paddy. And I just went, bang, you fucking got it then. If you want Paddy, let's do it. Yeah. And it just gave me the confidence and the license to go, right, I'm bringing everything to him. And that's what I did. And and just from that moment on, when you know you're allowed the freedom of a character and you're not there battling over the minutiae and nonsense that can happen sometimes, I think after so many months in, it was like, just trust the guy. He know he is Viserys. He knows this guy, and you have to do that as a writer. Sometimes you just got to hand this over to somebody and go, "Listen, I'm here to guide you, but this is your journey now." Right. Um, but for George to say that is the greatest compliment. Um, yeah, it's amazing, really. Is you know we've been talking about the kind of that you know self doubt that imposter syndrome thing and you like you had you know early success once you kind of committed to acting I mean I would say did you like was there like a, was there a a job that scarred you or something like were you fired from an early job like what happened I, I would no I never got fired from anything it wasn't that I, you know I I was a very lucky kid in that I got out the blocks with a decent body of work you know yeah. I mean. You, Ken Meadows got the, you know, he's the guy that got me back into wanting to act again. Um, so there was uh, Romeo Brass with him. I worked with Pavel Pavlikovsky on a couple of his early films, you know. Uh, I worked with Jim Sheridan. I worked with Michael Winterbottom, you know. Absolutely, it was, yeah. It was just, yeah. it was amazing. But I, um, I feel that uh, something got stuck at some point, and it was probably around the time of Dead Man Shoes, right. that something got stuck and something in me was going like, something's not working here for me. I, 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 I feel like I have all this potential, but I don't really know what to, what to do with it. And, you know, I got offered, I, I'd had a role in the Bourne Automatum, which was a really big film, but um, it was a big film. It didn't need me in it at all, you know, and that's not self-deprecating. It's a fact. 
I loved working with Paul Greengrass. I, I, I was a great, great filmmaker. And I was working with Matt every day, you know, but it's, I was playing this journalist who's sitting there watching Matt do Kung Fu and that. I'm going, well, I can do that. I'll help if you want. I've, I can fucking throw right. <laughs> and you're sort of sitting there going, what am I doing here? You know, like, um, there wasn't a, a, a big film, but I knew that it wasn't a, a moment for me in a career sense or even an acting sense that people would go, oh, God, you were great as that Guardian journalist in the Four <laughs> Intimatum. It, yeah, it people great... rarely say the eighth lead in the action movie. They're yeah. not going to say, this is the one. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get I mean, it. But it's a great film. It's a great no. film. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I was absolutely grateful for the uh, chance, but there was a couple of moments on that even when I thought, you know, I'm not sure about this anymore. I don't know what's going on. And I, I started to feel that early. And then, you know, Dead Man's Shoes was something I did. I did the Red Riding trilogy, uh, yep. which was a great show that we did in England. You look at it now. I mean, it's smash. You know, you put that out on Netflix or brought it out as a new drama. It's oh, totally. It. It's Andrew smashed. Garfield, an amazing oh, cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had an incredible cast of fucking everybody was in yeah, it. Yeah. We all got paid nothing. Of course, I remember being on the set <laughs> of that. We stood with Peter Morlin and there's Dave Morrissey and. You know, there's Sean Bean and like you say, there's Andrew Garfield and everybody's doing their thing. You know, we're, we're all crossing over because we're shooting these different years. And I remember having a conversation with uh, Peter Mullen about the fact that we were getting paid nothing. And I said, well, why did you do it then? You know, and he said, well, I do it because they said you would. I did it because they said you were doing it. And I went, well, I only did it because they said you were doing it. And everyone <laughs> turned around and went, well, I only did it because you did it. And everyone... <laughs> You know, this isn't showing everybody, but the vibe on the set was, oh, I did it because they said you did it. And I went, they, they got us all to do yeah, it they got- <laughs> on the back of each other. <laughs> We're all idiots. Oh. You know, that's how they trapped all and got us on it. But it was a really great piece of work. Um, James Marsh directed yes. the, the yes. one that I did. You know, not, gone on to do some great documentaries and, and film work. So, you know, I think... I think Dead Man's Shoes is probably the thing that just became a bit of a weight, not in terms of the film. It's it's an it's an incredible film, and, and I think it's a powerful performance. But it became a weight around my neck for a long time, and I couldn't break it. And no matter, didn't matter what I did, it's like, oh, you'll never beat Dead Man's Shoes. And I'm going, I'm not here to beat anything. And then Dead Man's Shoes is further and further in the distance, and I'm going, is anything going to come? Yeah to change the consciousness just a little bit because, you know, I could say all the firm and Gary Oldman, all, you know, made in Britain and Tim Roth, I can pick out those guys, but they kind of did work that, you know, sort of pushed them further on down the line. And and I'm still sitting here going, what's going on? I'm still the guy in the green coat. And (laughs) sometimes it builds up a, well, it did, it built up a kind of resentment and it was only because I'm going, I'm capable of more. That's great. And I can do that. But, in some ways, playing that character wasn't a challenge to me. Playing Viserys right. was a challenge, but playing that character wasn't a challenge. And, uh, you know, just having that sense that you've got so much more to give and that you want to learn about this thing that now, you're now suddenly doing and you're making a living from, but you're feeling so, you know, terribly insecure about. Um, I'd, I'd been offered a, a script years ago and um, it was to play this leading role, and, and it was so one-dimensional. And I said, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I said, I can't do it. I just, it's all about running and jumping over shit. And I said, I'm like, there's nothing there. Um, 
And then there was another role in it of King Charles the first. And I went, I'll play the king. Yeah. And I looked at it and I went, I could do some of that. I could turn that into a Phil Hoffman type, like he was even in a long cane poly, you know, and he flounces <laughs> on the stage on the, that wonderful moment. And I'm like, I can do something like that with this. And I said, I'll play the king. I'll do the king. Oh, no, no. Um, no, we don't really see you as a king, you know? So you'd have to deal with that. Well, that's Go the thing. Yeah, he's got his Funko <laughs> king. Who's the king now? Who's the king now? Mother liquor. <laughs> I also have to say, I mean, like I took the opportunity when I knew I was going to talk to you just to dive down the hot fuzz YouTube rabbit hole to watch some of your scenes, oh, God, you and Rafe. Oh my God. It's just, it's, it makes me laugh so much. Um, did it feel, I mean, were you, I, I mean, I know I've talked to Edgar a lot about that film and obviously the Michael Bay influence. Did you go back to Michael Bay? Did you look at like any specific character tropes to No, It was just all instinct. What was it? Sometimes, you know, this is the funny thing with characters and research. Sometimes research is really, really helpful. Sure. Um, and, but, but I and, and but I know those guys are very much go to certain movies and look at certain movies. The only thing in it was like Point Break was the first film that me and my wife went to see together. Oh. We've been together for 13 years, 31 years this year or something. We've been married for, for 20 years. And um, that was the first film that we went to see at the cinema together. I love but, it. Yeah, Hot Fuzz to me wasn't like that. I mean, we did, myself and Rafe did go out to Wells or we went somewhere near Bristol and we met a couple of detectives as part of our research, you know, and Edgar sent us on a research trip. And the first time I met Rafe actually was, you know, it was waiting in this sort of hotel bar thing when I got off the train and then we got picked up and went to meet these detectives. And they were kind of like the Andes. They weren't comical, but they were like the Andes. And, and, you know, they were telling us about all the various murders and the cases in the area. And they couldn't wait to show us the pictures of dead bodies. You know, they had this thing of like, you know, well, this happened to such and such. We walked in the room and this body, it was like something from Indiana Jones. We'll show you in a minute, you know. <laughs> they couldn't wait to get the grotesque. And then at one point, one of them says, uh, well, I'm going up the road to the bakery. Uh, does anyone want a flapjack? Like, and in the thing, you know, everyone's buying cakes and that in hot foot. And I always felt like, is that could set this up or something? But these guys had so many similarities to the Andes that they were off to buy cakes and flapjacks and things like that. And, but um, that was the extent of the research. Me and Rafe just... <laughs> I mean... We were like naughty kids at school. That's the only way to describe it. We, were, we, were, we became our own little thing. You know, and we became the Andes, and we had a good laugh. And it was, well, man, that that film was like going to school. It was like well, being like, at school again. Yeah, you can imagine like that. That's the, the beauty of a film like that—that that is so rich in every smaller character. Is like you could watch the movie about those characters. You can you imagine the broader life of those characters. Um, yeah. that's what's what's on yeah. screen. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I've got to say that's Edgar's writing, and that's Edgar. And and sometimes I won't say give you a line read. But it sometimes it reminded me of Bruce Robinson, you know? When you mm -hmm. see documentaries talking about Neil by mouth, get in the back of the van and all that, you know? Right. Edgar would sometimes be riffing with you and he'd say a line and you'd go, oh, okay, that, is that how you want me to, to say well, it? Because he's know? made the, the movies but in his head work. already. He's got it there exactly. already. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. makes movies in his head.
And it wasn't every time, it wasn't for every line, but it, you went, oh, okay. And actually it did inform you of where you could go with the character and then you could really go to town with all them one line. It's like, you know, you've got a moustache and all that. And, but what Edgar does allow for is for those moments like, I had to laugh because in this Empire Magazine poll of the best shots in Edgar Wright film, this the, the shot from Hot Fuzz was number one. And it was like the shot where, you know, where Simon and Nick are in the frame and there's me and Rafe and, you know, I lean out of frame and then come back in and then... Got this like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, my God, you know, a centimetre less, an inch more, whatever. But it's how oh, it's like perfect. It's just up to the gods how that happened. <laughs> We both come back into the frame, you know, and that got voted the best shot. And I just laughed and I said to Edgar, I said, how ironic for all the whip pans of mad yeah. shit that you do for films, that a static shot wins the best. Uh, just two guys coming world. back. I see it on yeah. Twitter every day. It's fantastic. Um, this might well, be the biggest <laughs> This might be the biggest challenge for you, Patty. Uh, rank the Rocky films for me. Give me... Oh. I know you are an uber Rocky fan. Um, yeah, I love Rocky. Where do you stand? I mean, Rocky changed my life. Rocky was the film that changed my life when I was a little kid. That was the film that I watched, and I watched that very young. And I went, "That's it. I'm getting out of here. I'm doing something with my life." That was it. I wasn't. Was it the film or the narrative behind the film? Because you could apply it to both. Like both things are inspiring. Stallone's story. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It was very much Rocky. I was like, "No, you know, I want to." And that idea, you know, that I want to be somebody. That's sort of on the water from, you know, as it origins in that, you know, I could have been a contender and all that stuff. You can see that in Rocky. And then, yeah, I just want to be somebody. And I think that's what I felt as a kid when I watched it. I used to walk around and roll my shoulders when I was walking on my own and, you know, do a bit of shadow boxing and things like that. I loved it. I think I would rank the Rockies the best. The first one is the best. I think Rocky 2 is the second best. I think that's a fantastic film. Um. So many great, great moments in it. I think Rocky Three is third. Wow. Okay, we're getting controversial now. I think, but continue. Okay. There's no world in which Rocky Balboa is a heavyweight in that film. By the way, he looks like a lightning. <laughs> Even so, in the commentary, they have to say he looks like a middleweight. <laughs> Someone likes going. Just say that. Because yeah. Because <laughs> they're not going to buy it. We got to say. Got to own up to it. Yeah. A heavyweight. But it's a great story, and I think the great characters, great writing. Brilliant acting. Um, and then Did I you... would go from three to Rocky Balboa. And, that was a good um, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think the worst is... is um, it's got to be five. five, right? Yeah, five's the worst. Yeah, and four. When I watch four these days, I, I tried to watch that extended cut of four with a few. Yep. And I was like, you know, because I loved it. When I watched it at the cinema, by the way, when I was in my teens, the place was... Absolutely, it was like being at a fight. Oh, yeah, everybody went nuts. They were cheering, people were throwing coins at the screen when Ivan Drago came on, and you could see the screen go <laughs> like ripple. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, this is not, I've never been in a film like that before. But, um, yeah, four to me, when I watched it last, it felt like a series of pop videos. Oh, it is. I mean, there are montages in there that are. I mean, it, it is a, the it is the distillation of the 1980s in a 90 minute movie. It's barely a movie, it honestly. Is. But it's as you, I I have fond remembrances of watching as a kid. It's it is what it is. And you like? Do you yeah. like the Creed movies? Were you were you out on Creed? I didn't like them as much. Really, I didn't like okay. them as much. No, I didn't. If I'm being honest, I don't, I don't like being really 
you know, sour or anything like that, or critical of other other work. But I, I love I love those Rocky films. They've got a massive Rocky collection actually, but it's it's boxed up at the minute. And um, I just feel that the heart of Rocky was all those wonderful characters, um, you know, of, of Mickey and Paulie and Adrian, and that was that was the Rocky world to me. And when when they died, I, I think Rocky died, and yeah, I, I never quite. I never quite felt arrested by, by uh, what's his name, the, the the his son in it, Apollo's yeah. son. Yeah, 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 Michael B. Jordan as Creed. Yeah, yeah. Apollo. Yeah, no, it's not him as an actor, man. It's not. No, I got you. Him. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's the cat, as you said. We fell in love with. Yeah. Yeah, I never felt that same thing, and I hated Rocky Five when all of a sudden he had nothing again. You know, he went and and that was a pretty shit film anyway. Wasn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't ring true. Right. Well, they kept they, they kept going vastly yeah. back and forth. His his net worth would just go back and forth by such degrees every film. It was like, where are we at now? <laughs> that is yeah, yeah, that's what they became. But the first few, there was really really great heart in them and yeah. fantastic storytelling. Yeah. Um, I'll let you go, man. I really appreciate the time. I, I mean, I, I could geek out with <laughs> you. Although you want to write the Rambo film. Rambo, oh God, Rambo films? <laughs> Those are few and far between, my friend. I don't know how you feel. First Blood, I have a soft spot for Rambo, the second one, because that's, again, a pure 80s movie. But the rest? Uh... Do you know Rambo 3, when that came out, I got hold of a really terrible black and white pirate version of it on, on VHS. And I had a screening at my mate's house, and I charged mates a pan to watch it, to come in and watch it. <laughs> So I fleeced them all for. I made about five or six quid out of it, and they sat there watching a black and white version of it, and, and the picture was jumping all over the place, and it was absolutely <laughs> awful. But everybody sat through it, you know, pinned to it. Hopefully, yeah. it'll be better in black and white. Yeah. Um, <laughs> congratulations. What's that? That it's classic in black and white. Uh, well, everything becomes classic in black and white. Yeah, that's how you do it. That's why. That's why the, the only you, you've probably heard the criticism. The only criticism, slight criticism of your show is like one of the episodes. People are like, "It's too dark. I can't see it. It's classier that way. Just make yeah. it darker. It's classy." Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just make it dark. Make it they dark. do make things too dark these days. It is true. And my wife even said that actually. She, she can't see anything. <laughs> and I went, just just I lean in. It's like when people come up to me and complain to me about the title music. Oh, you know, why haven't they got new title music right. going? Oh, fucking no, mate. <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> Hang on a minute. I'll just give them a ring and let's find out. <laughs> just don't. I don't know, mate. Let's see, let's see the Funko doll one more time before we go. I got oh, it. The... Yeah, this is a big moment. I got one of these. Um, yeah, look. I, I definitely can. I would, if I were you, I would have a wall of those. That's amazing. I hope they bring a variant out with his mask and things like that. And what else have I got? Oh, I've got my dragon. The only thing I, I, I well, I was given this. I say I nicked it from the set. I, I did nick a couple of these, and they asked for them back. And 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 one of the props guys went, I'll, I'll lose my job. And I went, Oh, bro, listen, man, no, no, listen, I'll get them back to you ASAP. I thought, oh, I won't miss them. And they count everything. So all I got here out of this set was this lovely dragon from my model of old Valeria. That's all I came away with. No mask, no staff, no... Uh... No mask, no. And I got a coin. Okay, okay. Like, you won't see what's on it. That's the dragon crest. And that's me when I'm young with no beard. Uh, and I haven't even got Targaryen long hair on it. So I don't know what that's all about. 
It's supposed to be me, but you don't make anything like me. Right. <laughs> That's the block, man. Enjoy Halloween. And Thanks, enjoy the yeah, Thanks for your right. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, <laughs> ha,